Hi and welcome to this podcast from 1914 to 1918war.com. In this episode we're continuing our reading of Bruce Bensfather's Bullets and Billets. I'll be covering chapter 30 and chapter 31 in this, so so sit back and enjoy this double chapter. Right, let's get on with the show. Chapter 30. Rain and mud. A trying march. In the thick of it, a wounded officer. Heavy shelling. I get my quietus. At a little after midnight, we left the field, marching down the road which led toward the Isère Canal and the village of Saint-Jean. Our transport remained behind in a certain field that had been selected for the purpose. The whole brigade was on the road, our battalion being the last in the long column. The road from the field in which we'd been resting to the village of Saint-Jean passes through the outskirts of Ypres, and crosses the Isère Canal on its way. I couldn't see the details as it was a dark night and the rain was getting worse as time went on. I knew what had been happening now in the last 48 hours and what we were going to do. The Germans had launched gas in the war for the first time and as everyone knows now, had by this means succeeded in breaking the line on a wide front to the north of Ypres. The Germans were directing their second great effort against the salient. The second battle of Ypres had begun. We were making for the threatened spot and were going to attack them at four o'clock in the morning. Ypres at this period ought to have been seen to get an accurate realisation of what it was like. All other parts of the front faded into a pleasing memory, so it seemed to me as I marched along. I thought of our rest at the village, the billets, the curé, the bright sunny days of our country life there and then compared them to this wretched spot we were in now. A ghastly comparison. We were marching in pouring rain and darkness down a muddy, mangled road, shattered poplar trees sticking up in black streaks on either side. Crash after crash, shells were falling and exploding all around us, and behind the burning city. The road took a turn. We marched for a short time parallel to the now distant Ypres. Through the charred skeleton wrecks of houses, one caught glimpses of the yellow flames mounting to the sky. We passed over the Isère Canal, dirty, dark and stagnant, reflecting the yellow glow of the flames. On our left was a church and a graveyard, both blown to a thousand pieces, tombstones lying about and sticking up at odd angles all over the torn-up ground. I guided my section a little to one side to avoid a dead horse lying across the road. The noise of shrapnel bursting about us only ceased occasionally, making way for ghastly, ominous silences, and the rain kept pouring down. What a march! As we proceeded, the road got rougher and narrower. Debris of all sorts, and horrible to look upon, lay about on either side. We halted suddenly and were allowed to fall out for a few minutes. I and my section had drawn up opposite what had once been an estaminet. I entered and told them all to come in and stay there out of the rain. 
The roof still had a few tiles left on it, so the place was a little drier than the road outside. The floor was strewn with broken glass, chairs and bottles. I got hold of a three-legged chair and by balancing myself against one of the walls, tried to do a bit of a doze. I was precious near tired out now, from want of sleep and a surfeit of marching. I told my sergeant to wake me when the order came along, and then and there slept on that chair for twenty minutes, lulled off by the shrapnel bursting along the road outside. My sergeant woke me. We're going on again, sir. Righto, I said, and left my three-legged chair. I shouted to the section to fall in and followed on after the battalion up the road once more. After we had covered another horrible half mile, we halted again, but this time no houses were near. How it rained. A perfect deluge. I was wearing a greatcoat and had all my equipment strapped on over the top. The men all had Macintosh capes. We were all wet through and through, but nobody bothered a rap about that. Anyone trying to find a fresh discomfort for us now that would make us wince would have been hard put to it. People will scarcely credit it, but times like these don't dilute the tenacity or light-heartedness of our soldiers. You can hear a joke on these occasions, and hear the laughter at it too. In the shattered estaminet we had just left, one of the men went behind the almost unrecognisable bar counter and operated an imaginary handle, asked a comrade... And what's yours, mate? Again, we got the order to advance, and on we went. We were now nearing the village of Wiltje, about two miles from St. Jean, which we'd passed. The ruined church we had seen was at St. Jean. The road was now perfectly straight, bordered on either side by broken poplar trees, beyond which large flat fields lay under the mysterious darkness. As we went on, we could see a faint red glow ahead, this turned out to be Wiltje, all that was left of it a smouldering ruin. Here and there the bodies of dead men lay about the road. At intervals I could discern the stiffened shapes of corpses in the ditches which bordered the road. We went through Wiltje without stopping. Passing out at the other side, we proceeded up this awful shell-torn road towards a slight hill at the base of which we stopped. Now came my final orders. Come on at once follow up the battalion who, with the brigade, are about to attack. Now we're for it, I said to myself, and gave the order to unlimber the guns. One limber had been held up some little way back, I found, by getting jammed in a shell hole in the road. I couldn't wait for it to come up, so sent my sergeant back with some men to get hold of the guns and tackle in it, and follow on as soon as they could. I got out the rest of the things that were there with us, and prepared to start on after the battalion. I'll go to the left, you'd better go to the right, I shouted to my sergeant. Here, Smith, let me have your rifle, I said, turning to my servant. I had decided he had best stay and look after the limbers. I seized his rifle, and slipping on a couple of bandoliers of cartridges, led on up the slight hill, followed by my section carrying the machine guns. I felt that a rifle was going to be of more use to me in this business than a revolver, and anyway, it was just as well to have both. It was now just about four o'clock in the morning. A faint light was creeping into the sky. The rain was abating a bit, thank goodness. We topped the rise, 
and rushed on down the road as fast as was possible under the circumstances. Now we were in it. Bullets were flying through the air in all directions. Ahead, in the semi-darkness, I could just see the forms of men running out into the fields on either side of the road in extended order, and beyond them a continuous heavy crackling of rifle fire showed me the main direction of the attack. A few men had gone down already, and no wonder, the air was thick with bullets. The machine gun officer of one of the other regiments in the brigade was shot right through the head as he went over the brow of the hill. I found one of his machine gun sections a short time later and appropriated them for my own use. After we had gone down the road for about 200 yards, I thought that my best plan was to get away over to the left a bit, as the greatest noise seemed to be coming from there. Come on, you chaps, I shouted. We'll cross this field and get to that hedge over there. We dashed across, intermingled with a crowd of Highlanders who were also making to the left. Through a cloud of bullets, flying like rice at a wedding, we reached the other side of the field. Only one casualty, one man shot in the knee. Couldn't get a good view of the enemy from the hedge, so I decided to creep along further to the left still, to a spot I saw on the left front of a large farm which stood about 200 yards behind us. The German machine guns were now busy and sent sprays of bullets flicking up the ground all around us. Lying behind a slight fold in the ground, we saw them whisking through the grass three or four inches over our heads. We slowly worked our way across to the left, past an old, wide ditch full of stagnant water and into a shallow gully beyond. Dawn had now come, and in the cold grey light I saw our men out in front of me advancing in short rushes towards a large wood in front. The Germans were firing star shells into the air in pretty large numbers, why I couldn't make out as there was quite enough light to see by. I ordered the section out of the gully and ran across the open to a bit of old trench I saw in the field. This was the only suitable spot I could see for bringing our guns to bear on the enemy and assist in the attack. We fixed up a couple of machine guns and awaited a favourable opportunity. I could see a lot of Germans running along in front of the wood towards one end of it. We laid our aim on the wood which seemed to me the chief spot to go for. One or two of my men had not managed to get up to the gun position as yet. They were ammunition carriers and had had a pretty hard job with it. I left the guns to run back and hurry them on. The rifle fire kept up an incessant rattle the whole time and now the German gunners started shelling the farm behind us. Shell after shell burst beyond, in front of and on either side of the farm. Having got up the ammunition, I ran back towards the guns, past the farm. In front of me, an officer was hurrying along with a message towards a trench, which was on the left of our newfound gun position. He ran across the open towards it. When about 40 yards from me, I saw him throw up his hands and collapse to the ground. I hurried across to him and lifted his head onto my knee. He couldn't speak and was rapidly turning a deathly pallor. I undid his equipment and the buttons of his tunic as fast as I could to find out where he'd been shot. Right through the chest, I saw. The left side of his shirt near his heart was stained deep with blood. A captain in the Canadians, I noticed. The message he had been carrying lay near him. I didn't know quite what to do. I turned in the direction of my gun section without disturbing his head and called out to them to throw me a water bottle. 
a man named Mills ran across with one and took charge of the captain, whilst I went through his pockets to try and discover his name. I found it in his pocketbook. His identity disc had apparently been lost. With the message, I ran back to the farm and, as luck would have it, came across a colonel in the Canadians. I told him about the captain who had been carrying the message and said if there was a stretcher about, I could get him in. All movement in the attack had now ceased, but the rifle and shell fire was on as strong as ever. My corporal was with the two guns and had orders to fire as soon as an opportunity arose, so I thought my best plan was to see to getting this officer in while there was a chance. I got hold of another subaltern in the farm, and together we ran back with the stretcher to the spot where I had left Mills and the captain. We lifted him onto the stretcher. He seemed a bit better, but his breathing was very difficult. How I managed to hold up that stretcher I don't know. I was just verging on complete exhaustion by this time. I had to take a pause about 20 yards from the farm and lie flat out on the ground for a moment or two to recuperate sufficiently to finish the journey. We got him in and put him down in an outbuilding which had been turned into a temporary dressing station. Shells were crashing into the roof of the farm and exploding round it in great profusion. Every minute one heard the swirling rush overhead, the momentary pause, saw the cloud of red dust. Then, crumph! That farm was going to be extinguished, I could plainly see. I went along the edge of the dried-up moat at the back, towards my guns. I couldn't stand up any longer. I lay down on the side of the moat for five minutes. Twenty yards away, the shells burst round and in the farm. But I didn't care. Rest was all I wanted. What about my sergeant and those other guns, I thought as I lay there. I rose and cut across the open space again to the two guns. You know what to do here, Corporal, I said. I'm going round the farm over to the right to see what's happened to the others. I left him and went across towards the farm. As I went, I heard the enormous, ponderous, gurgling, rotating sound of large shells coming. I looked to my left. Four columns of black smoke and earth shot up a hundred feet into the air, not eighty yards away then four mighty reverberating explosions that rent the air. A row of four Jack Johnsons had landed not a hundred yards away, right amongst the lines of men, lying out firing in extended order. I went on, and had nearly reached the farm when another four came over and landed fifty yards further up the field towards us. They'll have our guns and section, I thought rapidly, and hurried on to find out what had become of my sergeant. The shelling of the farm continued. I ran past it between two explosions and raced along the old gully we had first come up. Shells have a way of missing a building and getting something else nearby. As I was on the sloping bank of the gully, I heard a colossal rushing swish in the air and then didn't hear the resultant crash. All seemed dull and foggy. A sort of silence, worse than all the shelling, surrounded me. I lay in a filthy, stagnant ditch, covered with mud and slime from head to foot. I suddenly started to tremble all over. I couldn't grasp where I was. I lay and trembled. I had been blown up by a shell. I lay there some little time, I imagine, with a most peculiar sensation. All fear of shells and explosions had left me. I still heard them dropping about and exploding, 
but I listened to them and watched them as calmly as one would watch an apple fall off a tree. I couldn't make myself out. Was I all right or all wrong? I tried to get up, and then I knew. The spell was broken. I shook all over and had to lie still, with tears pouring down my face. I could see my part in this battle was over. Chapter 31 Slowly recovering Field hospital Ambulance train Back in England How I ever got back I don't know. I remember dragging myself into a cottage, in the garden of which lay a row of dead men. I remember someone giving me a glass of water there and seeing a terribly mutilated body on the floor being attended to. And finally, I remember being helped down the Viltger Road by a man into a field dressing station. Here I was labelled and sent immediately down to a hospital about four miles away. Arrived there, I lay out on a bench in a collapsed state and I remember a cheery doctor injecting something into my wrist. I then lay on a stretcher awaiting further transportation. My good servant Smith somehow discovered my whereabouts and turned up at this hospital. He sat beside me and gave me a writing pad to scribble a note on. I scrawled a line to my mother to say I had been knocked out but was perfectly all right. Smith went back to the battalion and I lay on the stretcher, partially asleep. Night came on and I went off into a series of agonising dreams. I awoke with a start. I was being lifted up from the floor on the stretcher. They carried me out. It was bright moonlight, and looking up I saw the moon, a dazzling white against the dark blue sky. The stretcher and I were pushed into an ambulance in which were three other cases beside myself. We were driven off to some station or other. I stared up at the canvas bottom of the stretcher above me, trying to realise it all. Presently we reached the train. Another glimpse of the moon, and I was slid into the ambulance car. In three days I was back in England at a London hospital, a fragment from France. And on that sombre note, we end our reading of Bruce Benn's father's Bullets and Billets. I hope you've enjoyed this reading from 1914-1918wall.com. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to read it, and uh, not a book I'd read before. Next episode will probably be a new bit of history, and then I'll be casting around for a new book to serialise. As always, do please take out a free subscription to 1914-1918.substack.com. Uh, it's where all my writing appears, and uh, more stuff being added there all the time. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.